Welcome to another edition of Unfiltered with my co-host, uh, Chairman of the Board of Supervisors, Steve Brandau. Good evening, Steve. And uh, uh, Fresno City Councilman, Mike Carbasi. Good evening, Mike. Uh, tonight, we have a special program with two co-hosts or two panelists from uh, GV Wire also, Bill McEwen, uh, Director of All News at GV Wire, and David Taub, uh, Senior Journalist. Welcome, gents. Uh, we're gonna do a rapid fire round, round robin uh, this evening. Um, talk about five or six different issues. So we're gonna jump right into it. The assembly and congressional races with lines redrawn David, you did, an, you did an article, I think it was, was about a week or two ago, kind of fill us in on that, what's happening, who's moving around, and then Bill, please uh, feel free to jump in. Well, Darius, uh, yeah, put out two today. This seems like with the political earthquake news that last week of Devin Nunes leaving Congress, he's leaving in the middle of his 10th term, maybe by the end of the month, but you never know with Devin Nunes because he is the most silent congressman when it comes to... Uh, actually revealing real information uh, when a journalist tries to ask him. We believe that Devin Nunes is going to be leaving December 31st, which would trigger a special election for his current seat. However, that's going to be running almost concurrently for the election for the seat next year, which will be under slightly different lines or depending on how the independent commission is drawing them, majorly different lines. So if we're going to be voting in this election, it might be a little confusing in June. But almost immediately after Nunes announced that he will not be uh, staying in Congress, he's leaving at the end of the month, many people uh, said we're, we're interested. And the main one is Nathan Magsig, the Fresno County Supervisor representing Clovis in the mountain areas. Also, State Senator Andreas Borges expressed his interest. And uh, Jim Patterson initially expressed his interest, the assemblyman covering Fresno. But today, he announced he will not be running and he endorsed Magsig. So these are people who might be running in the special election which could take place in uh, the primary around April and the regular part of that election uh, in June. And you'd only be serving for about six months. And uh, one other name that expressed possible interest was Fresno County Supervisor Steve Brandau. So, uh, Supervisor, I got to ask, where are you? Are you going to be running for Congress? Are you still interested? Well, David, that's actually a really good question. Uh, because so I think it's only fitting that I make this announcement on GV Wire, right? Uh, because uh, I'm part of the Unfiltered Show. But no, I'm not going to run for Congress uh, this time around in this special election. So uh, the, the pathway is clear for either my colleague or uh, uh, State Senator Borges or whoever else wants to enter the race. They do not have to uh, fear uh, Steve Brandau getting into that race. But, so you're not, uh, not going to run for the special election or you're not going to run for the uh, regular election? Well, for sure, I'm not going to run for the special election, so I'm not getting all geared up about that. I'm going to wait and see what happens, what transpires when the final maps are drawn for all of the rest of the districts of California. But uh, there's still a, a certain level of interest for me, um, but not in the special election. Now, that's probably the most common response I got when I asked potential candidates. Well, I'm going to be waiting for the lines to be drawn. It's a legitimate response. Now, for the journalists who've been covering these, uh, these uh, California Citizen District and Commission meetings, they've been happening almost every day uh, for about 12 hours a day. It's, it's a big job to uh, make the sausage out in public. 
and the journalists don't quite know how the commission is going to draw the lines. I don't even think the commission knows what they're doing. Because every time they think they have something locked down and they have preliminary lines, things change. So we can look at the website, uh, wedrawthelines.org, uh, and they have maps there. You can't say they're the final maps because the lots of different factors with this newness seat. Some people are saying that, well, the proposed seat that would somewhat cover what Nunes' current area is would be more democratic friendly. And some speculate that maybe that was a reason why Devin Nunes decided to uh, take the money and run. But, uh, you know, today uh, or, you know, we have a story that causing the domino effect. Joaquin Arabla has expressed interest for this congressional seat, which would cover South Fresno through uh, parts of Tulare County, which if those lines hold. And then the domino effect, Esmeralda Soria and Nelson Esparza, both Fresno City Council members, have said that they are interested in running for the seat that Joaquin Arabla would not run in. Now, here's another factor. If somebody is running for these congressional seats, whether it is for the special election or for the regular election in June, if there are a current elected member who also has a position that would be elected in June, they would not be able to run for both positions. So another question for the uh, esteemed supervisor. If Andre's board just decides to run for Congress instead of state Senate, Mr. Brando, would you be interested in being a state senator? Well, David, that goes really back to my former answer. So I haven't even seen, and I would ask you, you, you're more of an authority on it than I am probably from all your reporting on it, but I haven't even seen um, if the new state Senate seats have been finalized yet. And so I'm not familiar with whether that Senate district that Andreas currently serves in, I know it's going to change dramatically. I've heard that it goes down almost to Kern County in the new iteration. And so I'd have to check that out as well. Yeah, that's what the commission is doing right now. They're going uh, Senate district by Senate district now to uh, you know, change the lines from their first draft. Uh, they kind of punted on the Congress. They're hoping to get the Congress lines locked down yesterday. That didn't happen. Now they're moving on to the Senate lines. They'll probably go back to the, the uh, congressional lines. And you're right, the proposed district that would cover uh, Fresno and Clovis uh, would go wrap all the way around, kind of through the west side, and all the way cover Bakersfield as well. So, you know, what does Clovis and Bakersfield have in common? I don't know. I don't think the commission knows either. I think drunken commissioners are what it has in common. Well, of course, there are no uh, Central Valley commissioners. There's some from the Stockton area. And nobody from the Fresno Clovis area on this 14-member independent commission, which is why you know they think Bakersfield, Clovis, North Fresno, yeah, sure they have something in common, which I think uh, people who live in North Fresno and Clovis with in Bakersfield for that matter would beg to differ. So there's gonna be a lot of domino effects. As Steve said, the most common answer depends when the lines are drawn, and those lines are supposed to be finalized by December 27th. And we'll see if that happens. If that doesn't happen, it could go to the courts. So <laughs> we're going to see the domino effect, especially if a Rambula decides to run for that congressional seat, especially if Esparza gives up the council seat to run for, for assembly. Uh, Sorio is turned out of the assembly, so she's not really giving up anything to, to run. She can still serve out the, most of the remainder of her term to, just to run for the assembly. Esparza can't he would have to forego re-election. He'd still serve to the end of his term. But uh, he, like state law, 
I'm pretty sure on this that there's some caveats and exceptions where generally you cannot run for two different positions on the same election. Okay, so David, that that race that's that uh, that the retirement of Devin Nunes is causing is very interesting to me because it you know the special election is running in Devin Nunes's current and his classic seat, the one that he's held for many terms as a representative, and that's a very Republican seat. But within a matter of months, it becomes essentially a Democrat seat. I'm not saying that it could not be won by a moderate Republican or or somebody um, uh, that is a, a Republican, but it definitely is there's a dramatic change. So I could see why um, Assemblyman Joaquin Arambula would be eyeballing that seat, you know, for the future, because it's essentially a Republican seat now that's going to become a Democrat seat within months. Now, remember, to run for Congress, you do not have to live in the district. You just have to be living in the state. So for somebody like Nathan Magzig or Andres Borges, they may not want to run for the new seat that would be more Democratic-friendly. They may want to run for a seat that's right now just designated as ECA for Eastern California, which cover several of the mountain counties all the way to the Nevada border. It covers uh, the western part of Fresno County. So they might want to run for that congressional district instead. Got it. So let's uh, move on. Uh, Steve, unless if you have a comment back, let's move on to no. Mike. And then and then we want to hear from Bill. And then we're going to go to our next topic. Right. Which is going to be uh, cannabis shop and uh, uh, lawsuits. Right. Thank you, Darius. So when we were talking about redistricting a couple of shows ago, we talked about the impact of new lines have on residents. They get a new representative and include have them in, be included in the process. Well, since the news of Congressman Nunes' retirement, it's been useful chairs and everyone's plotting and planning what they want to do. And, you know, you learn a lot when you are in office. And I have to admit, for about five minutes, I started flirting with it. And I thought, what am I doing? I thought about the things I have yet to accomplish, like Veterans Boulevard. And there was a, we're making a lot of progress on that today. So it, it's interesting to see what's going to happen. There may be vacancies on the city council because of that. And that will change a lot of things in this city. So question for you, Mike, and for David and, and Bill. Uh, Cam Malloy had a, has a really good uh, a point, and she has a question. Uh, she said this could be a lot of uh, taxpayer money wasted on these special elections. Can we just leave the seat open? No. And, uh, no. Hold on one second, Dave. Uh, can we see? Uh, and and um, what are the pros and cons uh, of leaving the seat open? And what are the laws? David, it sounds like you have an answer for that. Go well, for the it. con is it's illegal. <laughs> okay. Denying the citizens a uh, chance to vote. There, there is one scenario where the seat can be remained open. It depends if it becomes vacant too far along in the process. Right now, for the June 7th election, the primary, or if uh, somebody gets more than 50% for the city council races, uh, the deadline to file is March 11th. That's the deadline to file for any position in the June election. So if a vacancy happens beyond then, there is an opportunity to leave that seat vacant until the people fill it. But whether it's an empty congressional seat or an assembly seat or a state senate seat, by law, the governor calls for a special election. Uh, but if it happens after March 11th, which is the magic date uh, for 2022, then you can leave it open. But the, you know, the well, front, it's you leave the seat open. For Bill and David, wouldn't it be for retention, employee retention for the residents? 
wouldn't it be appropriate to charge a fee if you're an elected official, like, like a city council, and then you you cost a special election? That's expensive to the taxpayers. I mean, is that something um, that you think uh, we should we should have, Bill? So I'm going to bring up uh, the situation from a couple of years ago when Henry T. Perea left early. Virtually every Republican in Fresno County and beyond was saying that Henry T. should take the cost of the election from his ample campaign war chest and uh, give it to uh, those jurisdictions that were involved. Uh, we haven't heard a word about Devin Nunes doing this. I haven't heard a Republican yet say that Devin Nunes, who has many, many, many millions of dollars in his campaign war chest, he should uh, give Fresno County the approximately $550,000 that it will cost uh, for this county's cost for the, uh, and, you know, of course, his district covers other counties as well. So you bring up a good idea, Mike, it'll never happen. Uh, politicians aren't going to vote a tax upon themselves or uh, pass that kind of legislation. But uh, I think it's just fair. Republicans say Democrats should do it. I know Democrats are already saying Nunes should do this, but it'd be nice if some Republicans stepped up the idea his campaign can really afford it. The other point I would like to make is Fresno and uh, Bakersfield are the anchors of the central and uh, the, the far southern San Joaquin Valley. And if maps put them together, it will really dilute our political power. Uh, the way it stands now with the anchor for seats and, uh, you know, areas moving towards Fresno and Fresno being the anchors. For some areas north, but also moving towards the south, uh, we have considerable uh, power in the uh, Assembly, the Senate, and in Congress. And if these maps that put Fresno and Bakerfield together are diluted. Question for yeah. David. Uh, from Inga. Is there a change with the McClintock seat? Do you know? Yeah, the proposed line right now, and actually somehow they found enough population to almost create a new seat uh, in the northern part of California. And that seems to be ideal for McClintock to run. And that would kind of save that ECA seat that I was referring to earlier. Somebody like Magsig or Borges. Uh, now the commission was debating yesterday where to put Roseville, which I believe in the last check was McClintock's hometown, should it be in that uh, new district or should it be in the ECA district? Of course, like I said, it doesn't really matter because you don't have to live in the district to run for Congress. Um, just to add to the point that Mike brought up, should people have to pay to, to uh, you know, if they bail out before for the special election? David Roll from the uh, Fresno County Democratic Party made a good point on one of the weekend shows that, in essence, that would be creating an exit fee or somebody who wanted to leave. And is that fair? Especially if people want him out, you really want him, you know, to have to debate, about to pay an exit fee to leave my seat versus just leaving. Um, you know, sometimes that's the price of democracy. Yeah. It's very fair. I mean, if they had to pay 10% of their campaign funds for causing an election, they would think twice. And this is Republican <laughs> or Democrat. I think it's, it's very fair. It's kind of a, it's a undue bondage, a servitude. <laughs> You know, but you know the thing is, they're moving on. It, it's it's only if you cause a special election to run for another office. 
So okay, let's well, move on. Leave an office of special election early. Let's move on to the next topic: cannabis shops and lawsuits. Mike, I think this was one of your items. No, but no. it is an item facing the city council. Um, you know, we've discussed this before on general terms uh, with this process. It being such a lucrative business, we are going to get sued. Um, people are going to be unhappy and they're going to make, uh, you know, they're going to make determinations. Um, you, get, we, you know, we, have, we had a few people that came forward and the council rejected four of the applicants. And so, you know, I really want to hear what Bill and David have to say about this. I mean, this, the, the county isn't facing this yet, but Steve's a former council member. And what their thoughts are on, you know, uh, something, some this new lucrative business where you have a monopoly of licenses and people get upset and they sue. And Steve, before we get to Bill and to David, Steve, was this part of ag mitigation? <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything was part of it at one time. But uh, yeah, no, the, the whole cannabis topic goes uh, back several years, Darius. Thank God I made the escape from City Hall before they had to make their... Final determinations. Uh, at one point, it was going to be medicinal. Uh, spent several years where we were talking about medicinal marijuana. Now that it's moved on to recreational and become so lucrative, you can see why people are upset if if their location hasn't gotten chosen. Um, I don't know, Mike. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Is the city uh, considering starting over or just rolling with it as chosen, as determined at this point, or or what's the latest? Well, that's not really my decision. I mean, with what, what has been discussed publicly um, at, the, at, the, at the hearing we had a few, um, last month, the city manager now has the authority to bring back additional licensees for the, for the ones that were rejected. The three, it's not four, excuse me, that were rejected. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the next person on the list. There's a, a plethora of criteria they consider. There were different criteria for social equity applicants and there were four traditional applicants. So those names haven't been brought forward. I believe they're going to wait until the new the, well now that the council has passed redistricting and now they can tr they can possibly put that into consideration. Okay, uh, Bill, and then so I think what's important here is considering how the courts may rule on this litigation. The court may take the opinion that this is like a beauty contest, and the city has the right to determine the winners. Uh, or the judge may say the process has been unfair and it, they could uh, prescribe all kinds of resolutions or situation uh, which could range from starting all over again to uh, having to be more clear about your scoring process and that kind of thing. My question for Mike is, given that the, the city has been banking on these dollars for help for law enforcement, help. Uh, around neighborhoods to uh, police these shops and the like. Um, are we going to have shops in 2022 or will it be 2023 or will it be 2024? What's your uh, feeling on that? Well, just my personal opinion as a council member, I, I have not been banking on this money because I think there's going to be costs we're not considering uh, with the impact they'll have. Um, it seems like things are moving forward. The question is the impact of litigation, if that's going to stop anything. I mean, for good reason, these decisions for as long as possible are in the hands of the city manager and not the politicians. I think that's a good thing. And it's been that way. Because if it's a beauty contest, imagine having seven different judges with different ideas of what beauty is. Um, you know, it's legal. People voted on it. You know, we have to follow the law. But at the same time, 
um, there is a criteria and it looks like no matter who you are, whether it's your Fresno or another city, there is going to be a level of subjectivity because ultimately it does go to the city council and each council member will say, well, because of X, Y, and Z, it may work in my district or not. And that happened in my case. Mike, what is social equity yeah, yeah, so from, from Inga? Sure. So three of the 21 licenses that we have in the city of Fresno uh, are what's called social equity applicants. Um, these are applicants that meet, David, there are three currently right now, aren't there, of the uh, 21 well, licenses? There, there are four currently, uh, but it's not limited. You're limited to uh, no, I one apologize. out of every seven. I didn't mean we're limited. We have three right now that I'm aware of, unless there's one I missed, David. Uh, there, there's four currents. Okay. Well, I, I, I just know there's one in District 2, one in District 1, one in District 3. <laughs> so these uh, applications have a different set of criteria. Um, you can be have been a veteran. You can have been convicted of a cannabis-related crime uh, that's no longer uh, that crime anymore. Um, and there's special training and resources. There's uh, fee credits for the fees, it's basically trying to help people that have been impacted by cannabis uh, to be able to become owners and start, start their businesses. All right, uh, Bill, any you had, I think, a comment on this, and then we're going to move on. So, uh, my last observation on cannabis is that uh, Fresno is one of the last major cities in California to adopt it, and meanwhile, a lot of cannabis shops have not been profitable is asking for a cut on the cultivation tax and people in Fresno that want medical marijuana or recreational marijuana, they're getting it. They're having it delivered to their house. And the pandemic has changed the way that people purchase things. A lot of people, it's the convenience of having it delivered. So my prediction is we have 21 shops in Fresno. We have changes in ownership. We're going to have some that are successful, but many won't be. Okay. The black market will still be successful. But yeah, well, here, yes, here's uh, what I would say. Look, is here's, here's what I would say. I mean, there's always a risk with the black market, and I'm hoping there's a convenience factor because access to medicinal marijuana is important. I do support that. Recreational, I'm not comfortable with, but medicinal, it's a lot less invasive than opiates. And we're having an opiate crisis and fentanyl crisis in this, in this country, in this state. So, you know, it's a business. The business has to be lucrative. I did not support going to 21 licenses because I was worried we'd oversaturate the market. We're going to find out what happens, but at some point there's market forces. Okay. All right. Uh, the tax on Marijuana sales is like 10 or 15 percent. Does anybody know? Uh, about that. The city yeah. keeps some of it and then some of it goes to the state. Mm -hmm. so, something like that, yeah. And, and so a lot of the money the state has comes back to the municipalities or in different social equity applicants or different groups like that, too. So the qu question, if, if the, these are going to be delivered, do you even need cannabis stores? If you can get a, a bill said you can just call and get it delivered. So... I don't know, but Amazon, especially if Amazon gets into that business, this may be a moot point. Okay, let's uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on. We're going to jump to jump one item and talk about mask mandates, and then we're going to go back to the January 6th panel 
uh, votes for contempt charges against Mark Meadows. So let's do mask mandates, which uh, rolls out uh, tomorrow. Right? Is that correct, team? Everybody's got to wear a mask tomorrow inside your home. Uh, Heavens no. Or not. Okay. Uh, except for Clovis. Except okay, except for Clovis. Right. All right. Who's gonna who's gonna take this on? I'll take it on. It's deja vu. It's deja vu. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna see now that you can't enter Costco, they're gonna be the mask enforcers. Remember everybody had a mask indoor mandate except for Clovis that nobody is enforcing it in Clovis. Who's gonna make Clovis so these restaurants and these businesses in Clovis do it? Uh I don't think there's a mechanism. I've been trying to ask the state health department who's putting on this mask mandate. Well, what about houses of worship? They can't give me the answer. You know, it's technically uh, public meeting places. Okay. But uh, is a church, is a mosque uh, a public meeting place? I can't get a straight answer for them. And we know how that went last time. Uh, Churches aren't going to be meeting outdoors this time of year. So let's go see them. Let's go see the mask police. Go enter your mosque on a Friday afternoon, Darius. Let's see how well that works. Let's go to Bill. Bill, comments on this. So this much ado of mask mandate will not be enforced, just as it's not enforced now, unless the business wants to enforce it. And so uh, the business asks you to follow state law. Business businesses that enforce it, you can go elsewhere. Uh, but my prediction is a lot of places just won't enforce it. We don't have uh, the, the kind of law enforcement needs doing what. Uh, America's attitude kind of is we've moved on from the pandemic. So I think Newsom did this because he thinks it's good policy, but everybody's just going to look the other way. So people that are up in arms about a mask mandate looking for a reason to be angry. Okay. Anyone else? Yeah, Darius, I, I want to say again, uh, because I'm already getting phone calls about the county's role. The county is not going to be in the enforcement business. Uh, we have not been in the enforcement business to this point, And we're not at this late date when everybody, I agree with Bill, everybody's burnt out of the COVID-19 issue. Um, the county is not going to get in the enforcement business. So if Governor Newsom wants to really add some teeth to this and make it <clears throat> functioning, then he's going to have to find a way of enforcing it. And so I think it's all BS. I think he's not even intent on that in the middle of uh, the holiday season. I think it's more of a uh, just a, a political and educational campaign opportunity for the governor. I think he believes in it. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't think he's seriously expecting that we're, we think that he's going to enforce it. So the odds are he just wants people to be more aware that the, adult, that the COVID numbers are going up. And I don't have a problem with him trying to make Californians aware of that. But I don't think, uh, uh, I don't think he's truly going to be enforcing this. And I don't think people have a lot to worry about. And certainly the county of Fresno is not going to do anything about it. Uh, two, two points. Uh, one from, um, actually, let me start with a shorter one first. Uh, from Inga, she said, uh, we're going to have a lot of people with dirty masks running around in stores again. They touch the mask and they touch everything else. Uh, that's that's a good point. And then we have a counterpoint on that. Michael, 
Schwabenland says, uh, before we close, we want an opinion from uh, border supervi- on the border, Fresno border soups not following 50% of other California counties and mandating masks. Steve? Yeah. Yeah, Fresno, yeah. <clears throat> well, for starters, Fresno County is not too far out of line with what other counties are doing in the Central Valley. Okay. So the Central Valley region, uh, for sure, and it might not be to Michael's liking, but we are certainly not following. Uh, the city of San Francisco. We are also not allowing uh, flash uh, robberies at our jewelry stores. <laughs> and we're not allowing homeless to defecate right out in front of law firms. So there's a lot of things that San Francisco does that we're not doing here in Fresno County. And we're really damn proud about it. Okay. Anybody else uh, before we move on? Sure, Darius. Um so one thing I've learned in the last couple of years when it comes to good policy, there's a handful of things you have to ask yourself. And one of the questions is, can we enforce this policy? I wish I could understand what they're thinking at the state because it's, it's kind of convenient that they're passing this rule while kids are going to be out of school. So it's not going to be as much of an issue in our schools, which is very controversial. Um, but look, in my personal choice, I, I, I have my mask. I still do wear my mask. I think it helps me avoid the flu. It, I, I believe, like, like with washing hands and good hygiene, it has helped me be less exposed to COVID. Um, and there's a lot of things we can do, but nothing is foolproof. Nothing is perfect. I chose to get vaccinated. It's worked for me. I'm glad I did that. And I encourage others to do that. But there are some things that you can't just mandate. You have to get people on board. And if we pass this policy, our crime, our violent crime right now is really high in Fresno. I cannot divert public safety resources or even code enforcement for that matter on this issue. Uh, we just have no way of enforcing it. And we have to really appeal to people to do what's right and convince them of the merits of wearing a mask. And if we can't do that, then okay. the consequences are on our society. And that's just the way democracy works sometimes. Hey, Darius, I'd like to respond to, to Mike. Uh, and, you know, so when you think about the city of Fresno, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of young potential Gavin Newsom's over there. Uh, or I don't know how you say, I don't know what the Spanish translation for Gavin would be, but there's a lot of potential liberal um, policymakers over there. And when the first mandate came out, Mike, this doesn't affect you, by the way. So you, but you can certainly pass on my question to your colleagues. Why don't they, why should, shouldn't they be getting serious about this new strain of COVID and shutting everything down again? I mean, that's what they did 18 months ago. So I thought they were real believers or were they just political fakers? That's uh, I'll have to, I'll have to defer to them for that. Yeah. That wasn't aimed at you. That wasn't aimed at you, my friend. That was, that was aimed at the true believers over there that were uh, bringing a lot of pain to our community. Right. Councilman, are you guys going to use this uh, as another excuse to close down City Hall again? There's no talk of that, David. I, I, don't, I don't imagine that be the case. Okay. Though they might use the community. Yeah, two or times, you know, in the summer. Okay, we're going to move on. Because okay. uh, we got two more topics. January 6th panel votes for contempt charges against Mark Meadows. Uh, Mike, you put this on? Yeah, so this is really interesting. I mean, the evolution of the debate for the riots we had uh, and the looting regarding George Floyd and, 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 and then now the January 6th right, uh, riots were about to have the one year anniversary. And it's really interesting. So recently 
uh, Jesse Smollett, the actor who lied about being a victim of a hate crime, a lot of the media was saying, well, Don Lemon, you know, he backed them up and now he's recanting. But now we see from Mark Meadows texts from conservative media like Fox News, which is a big media outlet. And you have people like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram now being I, I, I don't want to say caught red handed, but the truth is out there. This, these are texts from Mark Meadows where um, Ingram says the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He's destroying his legacy. Sean Hannity writes, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol? And yet, when you watch the programs, they are not treating these rioters who ended up causing police to get beaten, which to me, I don't care what you're arguing, whether it's the any issue, looting, attacking officers, not okay. Yet it kind of feels like there's a bit of hypocrisy here. And why aren't they holding us all accountable to the same standard? I mean, what happened was wrong. It's just wrong. But there's so many different angles now they're looking at it. So I'm just curious what my, my uh, fellow panelists think about that. Uh, yeah, violence is wrong. And I'm just kind of interested in the whole legal aspect, that the argument that Trump and his team have made up these as executive privilege, and somehow it doesn't apply because he, Donald Trump is no longer the current president. And I always wonder why they're going after the lawyers. So I always thought that uh, information between a lawyer and his client is privileged information. And maybe there's an exemption when it comes to congressional hearings that there is no uh, attorney-client privilege or the executive privilege where a president and his advice that he gets from his closest advisors is supposed to be protected. Now, maybe that doesn't count in a congressional hearing. Same thing with the, the shield lock. Is like you mentioned that a lot of these texts were between journalists from Fox News and other organizations and uh, Mark Meadows and the others, and they're being exposed. Maybe it's only shield uh, when it's from the journalist end. They get the text message from somewhere else. Maybe the shield law doesn't apply. But uh, that's just interesting. Well, look at Como's this- brother, David. I mean, now that now he got fired from CNN. He probably right. should have been fired for what he did. Now, this isn't quite the same, but are we are, are, are these journalists being honest with their audience? They have a ve- the Fox News audience is a very strong base, is very powerful. It's a big microphone to have. Yet they're not being very they're being a bit disingenuous. Is that would that be a correct statement? It seems that way. And remember, when you're on a national TV think, show, I've had to play a character on TV as mm. well as being a journalist at the same time. OK, OK, we're going to go to Bill. And there's a question uh, from Inga. Who has been charged with insurrection? Bill, can you answer that and your comments? So no one's been no one's been charged with insurrection. Uh, hundreds of people have been charged with uh, various other crimes: trash, trash, uh, assault on uh, police officers, all kinds of crimes like that. And uh, we saw yesterday that the uh, man that went to Washington, D.C., all loaded up with guns and clips and, uh, you know, uh, uh, bullets and and the like, and who said, you know, he he wanted to kill Pelosi, he received 28 months in prison, and his lawyer's defense was that he didn't mean it, didn't buy it. And it's the same judge that's involved in... uh, Hearing many of these cases of uh, people that were involved in the Capitol riots. A point I would like to make from the past conversation is uh, Laura Ingram is not a journalist. 
journalist. Chris Como is not a journalist. They're opinion people. Uh, and there is a distinction there. All opinion should be marked opinion. All news stories should be written straight. All in that. And, uh, you know, what this, what this case really about is the extent of executive privilege. And uh, what the judge has ruled in this case is that uh, it doesn't end with uh, Mark Meadows. And what's interesting to me is he already turned over all these texts. So it's kind of like, you know, he revealed what was going on on that day. And now it seems like he's trying to back away from it. Okay. Any com final comments on this from any of the panelists before we move on to our final topic? Yeah, Darius. So I'm kind of a latecomer to this item. I don't watch Fox News. I don't watch CNN. I, I really detest both of them. But um, but <clears throat> so when I found out we were going to talk about this tonight, I wanted to look it up. So I looked it up. So I guess some some um, reporters who had close connections with Meadows texted him some stuff. Hey, there's a there's a major problem breaking out. Why aren't you doing anything or why can't Trump say something? But in all reality, I didn't see any place where Meadows responded to any of them. And so I, I don't know how it falls out on Meadows. I just don't get that connection. I mean, they remain silent about it. I guess that's the worst you could say. They hadn't devised a response yet. Is you know, So I don't know. So I, I'm not sure where Congress takes this. Now, I get what Bill's trying to say now. I guess Meadows is finally saying, hey, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Uh, so maybe, maybe he could be held in contempt at some point. I'm not sure, but, um, really, uh, I guess I will be, uh, the one voice on the panel tonight that says in all reality for me and for many people that I connect with, we're pretty quiet about this one, but it's really much ado about nothing. So there you go. Okay. You know, yeah. good, we're just quiet. We're just going to let you guys continue hunting down Trump until you kill him. But we, we understand that's going to happen. But in all reality, we don't think there's much here. It's, no, the, the, these are real, those are really good points, Steve. Like, so I use the word riot, not insurrection. I think I, I know people use the word insurrection. To me, something bad happened on January 6th. And getting to the bottom of that is really important. It's a criminal matter, but it's gotten so political. And, you know, I agree with you about Fox News and CNN. I don't watch them either just because it feels right. They're not journalists. It's all commentary. You guys that's both, all it is. You guys both watch GV Wire. We do. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. Because <laughs> you know, it's the only source of real local information <laughs> written. You know, as um, long as I've known Bill McEwen, he's had that stand, Mike. And that's one thing I don't that I really appreciate about Bill. Now, we don't always see things eye to eye. And we've had many debates over the telephone. Um, but. Um, I think Bill McEwen's really expressing it correctly. There's so very few journalists right now. I don't I don't believe that our local newspaper is full of journalists. They're uh, full of people who have opinions. And, and, and then that just gets promoted. This is one of the reasons I quit watching Fox News a couple of years ago and CNN as well. Is really you're just getting the opinions of overpaid people. And there's not a lot of true, in my opinion, journalism going on. It's showmanship. Yeah. Can I ask Bill a question? Yes, Bill, because we're going to move on to the last item after this. Go, to, go to, to play devil's advocate, uh, you know, I, mean, I, I agree, this is a legal matter, but if Mark Meadows was to go and testify, would it be a circus where it's 
just predetermined questions or would it be a fact finding mission? What did you mean when you texted this or what, what was your interpretation of this? I mean, what is it going to be? Because I'm very interested in the facts. I'm tired of the circus. I think that's really hurting this country. <clears throat> so my answer to that would be it's uh, Congress. So it will be political as designed to embarrass Mr. Meadows questions intended to embarrass President Trump. But I think the overarching goal is to find out what the president's role was in all of this. And under, unlike Supervisor Brandau, I do about nothing. Uh, we had multiple deaths from that. We have peace officers committing suicide. It was a terrible event. All you have to do is, uh, you know, if you watched it, watch the video since. It wasn't just a little people got out of hand to this because my family's in law enforcement. But I have to remark, I mean, the one lady was killed because she was going to go into that very secure area and she ignored all the officer's orders to halt. But I'm amazed at uh, how restrained the police force was that day. They would have been justified to bring out their weapons and start firing. And Bill, you made a good so point. I can't say much to do about nothing. It was a very big, very dangerous event and very embarrassing to the United States of America. I've lived all over like a banana republic that day. And leading the charge on this were a bunch of losers who were looking for a reason to be angry. And if you look at the criminal histories of all those people involved, no, they're not. And finally, the people involved in that, they don't understand the Constitution. They always talk about their rights. I doubt that they've ever read the Constitution. And again, Congress has every right to get involved in this and get to the bottom of it. The American people deserve an answer. Great. Well, and so Bill, I want to respond to Bill there a little bit. Because okay. here's one of the things that we disagree on. And, and in all reality, Bill, I agree with some of your your statements right there out of hand. Uh, I think there was a lot of goofy people involved and and I have no problem with them getting prosecuted. And and um, if they broke the law, they should be prosecuted. There's a lot of weird stuff that happened on that day. There were a lot of places at the Capitol where people were invited in by law enforcement. So I, I'd love to hear it all settled. But do you think it was also an insurrection bill when up in the downtown of Seattle, People declared that they were no longer part of the United States of America and set up their own government. Do you think that is also insurrection worth prosecuting? So, I mean, you're using a common debate trick here, which is to point to something else and try and compare it. That's a totally different situation. What was the context? They were going to officially confirm Joe Biden as president. President Trump had directed people, and he tried to direct Vice President Pence not to affirm Joe Biden. Uh, and what happened in Seattle? That's crazy. It's wrong. The people involved should be prosecuted to the limit. Even crazier is the city of Portland taking part of downtown and saying, well, it's really not part of Portland anymore. It's where these anarchists can do their thing. That was a total 
abdication of the responsibility of the leadership of the city of uh, Portland. But these are not, uh, you know, it's apples to oranges comparing. Well, no, Bill, I'm only, I'm only interested in this. When I see Congress getting as interested in what happened in Portland <laughs> and what happened in Seattle, then the, I will know that they're truly interested in stopping insurrection rather than just a political circus. So well, when uh, I see that Steve, happening, yeah. Steve, as you well know, that's a responsibility of the state of Oregon, the state of Washington, the voters of Seattle, the voters of Portland. Okay, that's, that's a good point. totally different than something happening in our na nation's capital, our common ground. Uh, the ground that binds all of us together, the ground that has inspired Americans, the ground that is an example of American exception. Okay, we're going to need to, that's great comments, Bill and Steve and Mike. We're going to move on to the next topic. On, I think, Mike, do you have a very brief comment on this? Like, I was just saying, this is what I call unfiltered. This is it. Okay. This is the debate. This is totally good. good. Okay, last item. Uh, and this is, I think, from Bill. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of comments so, on the last item, but, but be, 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 hold on one second, Bill. Inga's got several questions. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to read out the questions because they're, they're interesting. And uh, we'll be, probably have a, another uh, episode on this down the, down the road. But uh, where are, what did she say? Where are the texts that Nancy Pelosi gets from NBC? Anybody know that? Uh, okay, we're going to move I, on. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Bill, you had an item on housing. As a reporter at GV Wire wrote a story about, uh, based on a state uh, report about growth in Fresno and Bakersfield in, uh, not in 2020, even amid the 3,000 residents, Bakersfield added nearly that much. And you know, during the year, California as a whole lost 180,000 in population. In addition, a report came out based on census data that said Fresno percentage increase in home ownership rates between 2010 and 2020. It was more than 7%. And now, uh, you know, we're doing uh, pretty good getting better on Home ownership in, in California, as you know, Daria, can be the basis of wealth for your family and for future generations of your family. So my question is, with millennials and boomerangs coming back to the valley uh, and this fact that they can remain employed by their uh, companies in the Bay Area and L.A., what is the city of Fresno and the county of Fresno doing to promote Fresno as the ideal place in California workers? And one thing I would like to add about remote workers, they're bringing wages in from the Bay Area and L.A., and they're bringing them into our Fresno economy. They're paying taxes here. It's, uh, it could really help us uh, in prosperity of our area. And I know that the, the supervisors and the councilmen are so busy putting out fires and, you know, attending to the needs of their constituents, 
But when do they have time to think about a big policy issue like this and rested in pursuing? Mike and Steve, that's for you guys. Yeah. No, this is important. This is not a, I mean, a, I know what you're saying, but this is not necessarily like a, a big policy issue. This is an opportunity. So I think, I think it's fair to say Steve and I, when he was on the council and now me on the council, we get really frustrated because we should be building more, not just in downtown, not just in North Fresno, but throughout the city. We get in our own way. And it's really frustrating because I want to go to an employer and say, come to Fresno. We have second greatest river in the states here. All kinds of activities. Yosemite's close. The Sierras are close. But the problem is, if I bring them here, it's like inviting someone to your house for dinner and they're not having dinner available. It's embarrassing. And it's it, that's very frustrating how we can capitalize on the fact that we should have more homeownership. The idea of homeownership and equity, it's, 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 a, it's a life changer for families. It's a way to create wealth. And we should be having more starter homes, more homes for moving up in the middle class, middle income folks. But we're missing the mark here. We could offer incentives, which is great. And I'm all for that. And if Bill, if you have ideas, tell me, we'll make it policy. That's what this discussion is all about. The only problem is how do we get planning departments from the cities and the counties, including Fresno, to start opening up? Is it outsourcing? Is it cross-training? What is it going to take? Because we haven't really gotten to that point yet where we can handle the, the load. Yeah, and Mike, I would tag team with your answer. I think it was a good a good starting place for a conversation. Great questions, Bill. So when I was a councilman, and Mike is right, uh, the cities of Fresno County is where the residential growth essentially takes place. Yes, there are some rural areas that people want to live, and they can go out and do their thing in rural Fresno County. But the cities, and I'm not just talking about Fresno, I'm not just talking about Clovis, but Kerman and Selma, this is where residential policy is set and developed and neighborhoods can come in and, and connect to city services and connect to school districts. So that is really the purview of the cities. At the county level, we don't quite deal with that at that, at that level. But, but I will tell you this, and Darius, I think you know this, there is a, a growing demand for the county to get in the game of residential development. And one of the reasons is, is the failure of our cities and mostly the city of Fresno to advance that systematically. Now, I'm not actually blaming the current council or the current mayor, but I know that Mayor Swearingen had a very limited view of development that was strictly an infill package. And we passed a 10-year general plan document based on that. Now, that has already shown, after just a few short years, to have so many flaws in it. But in reality, the problem is so complex, it even goes beyond that. It goes to policy that's being set in Sacramento that does not bear witness on the streets of Fresno. In other words, the policy that they're talking about to increase housing in Sacramento is not working on the streets of Fresno in my opinion. So we still have not yet got down to the root of the problem of why we are not building residential neighborhoods anywhere near the magnitude that we need to build them. So in my opinion, we're going to continue to struggle and talk about this issue ad infinitum until people understand what drives development and get out of the way 
of those processes. That's my humble opinion. I got a comment on that, Steve. Great points. Great question uh, by Bill and answers by uh, Mike and you. Uh, so part of the challenge to build getting new projects approved in California is what we call nimbyism, not in my backyard. Uh, folks don't want development to occur next to their existing uh, homes. Uh, you, you live in an area that's uh, got an open field next to your home. Uh, you don't you want to build as a park. I have so many of our neighbors and areas where, you know, we build or getting ready to build, tell me, you know what, just build a park. And of course, as soon as I tell them, you know, parks are a great hangout for homeless, they go, oh, shit. Uh, we can, we can, maybe we shouldn't do that either. But part of the issue uh, is the process you have to go through to get housing projects approved in California, which takes, you know, you've got to go through all the environmental uh, analysis and studies. And really, by and large, most of them, if not all of them, make sense. But that process also sets you up uh, for litigation from anybody to anybody that wants to stop that project. But uh, parallel to that, Denise uh, Macros has got a great point. There are currently 45 million millennials between 26 and 45 that are in the prime of their employment years and a huge opportunity for Fresno to attract this demographic, which could come in here, work and live and play and spend money. We know we have a hard time finding uh, finding uh, the right uh, team to work for most of our companies. Uh, that's subject to future uh, articles coming up at on GVR about some of the educational challenges we face. But uh, government, local government, does play a role, Steve and Mike, and so does uh, state government in streamlining and fast tracking and making more units available. As most of you know, there was a report that came out in 2016, I believe, by McKenzie and company that said California is short three and a half million homes over the next 10 years. So between 2016 and 2026, three and a half million new homes have to be built just to get caught up. Divide that by 10, that's 350,000 homes a year. Well, guess what? California uh, issues about... California home builders pull roughly 100,000 permits a year. So we're short about a quarter million new homes every year. And it's a variety of reasons why these can't get off the ground. Land is expensive. Infrastructure is not available. Fees are too high. And then you have the new rule that came into play about a year ago on you know, the VMT rule. So all of these things make new housing substantially more expensive and, and more difficult to, to, to supply. And the best way to normalize pricing is to increase supply. You increase the supply of homes in Fresno and in, in every neighborhood, you know, by a factor of two, I can tell you prices will be coming down. And one of the things that developers fear the most is having a lot more competition across the street from them uh, because that dilutes their market share and will cut into their profit margins. So I think Steve, you had a comment on that. Yeah, I watched about 10 or 15 minutes of uh, Fresno City Council's meeting uh, this last week. And, and Mike, you were there. I saw lots of people standing up to talk about housing is a right, uh, a, a basic human right, and that government essentially owes it to people to give them housing. And I mean, it was that blatant. Uh, and they were talking about rent control and all of these processes 
They don't even, in my opinion, and you're hearing me talk about it on Unfiltered, I'm sure we'll return to this in the years to come. These processes, rent control will stop development in its tracks. At least multi, multi-family developments of, of essentially apartments, condominiums, these corporations that build these products can easily pick up and move even to another state if they want to, okay? But I think you'll see a lot of that dry up as people are unwilling to invest in a multifamily project where the rent is going to be taken out of their hands. It's not going to be able to go up with the market. It's going to fall underneath rent control. And yet, person after person at Fresno City Council demanded those very things. Now, the governor is is very open to hearing from all of this. So that's why we are getting a very dysfunctional set of policies. On the one hand, you cry with your mouth that you need more affordable housing, and then you create the very policies that make that virtually impossible. Yes, Steve, we had a lot of folks that came in and spoke, but I think, um, and you know, I remember you warned me about this before I got on board when I was running, and, and a lot of people say, you know, people will come and they will speak and it's going to you know, motivate you and just, you know, think very clearly. What we have to do as a council is to understand these folks came, we heard them, they spoke, but we have to act in the interest of the majority. That's our responsibility. The, it's a very unfortunate that the definition of affordable housing is turned into government subsidized housing. Where as a government do we get money? Our tax base. Well, where does our tax base come from? Primarily in Fresno, it's property taxes. So who owns property? homeowners. So it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know there's an argument of rent control. Here's the problem. Mandates like delays, litigation, uh, mandates from the state, all increase costs. You have a pro pro forma when you build a development, here's what it costs. The problem is developers and rich people don't pay that cost. You or I pay that cost. And that's why housing gets less affordable. That's how our economy works. Our economy also works in a way that if you work, you can succeed. And if we increase supply and put power back in the hands of the consumers and break up monopolies, what happens is we have more competition and we have lower cost of housing. One of my colleagues said this is a problem we can build our way out of. It's true. We can create jobs, build more homes. The fact of the matter is there, I believe housing and clothing and food, shelter, these are what was the term they used? Uh, human rights. I think they're necessities to live and survive. But our we have to have initiative and we have to do a lot as a city to ensure, hey, we're not overburdening people and saying, come invest in our town, but we're going to tackle this stuff on you and by the way, make it really hard for you and pass on those costs to the consumer. That doesn't work. Affordable housing means you with dignity can work a job and afford a home. That's affordable housing, not housing that costs $400,000 a unit. That's not affordable. It's not sustainable. Okay. Marius, I'd love to ask you a question. You're the moderator tonight, but you're also the expert in the room about building. Now, what have you seen in the cost of the median house in Fresno or just take a Granville house? What did a Granville house cost in 2010? What did it cost in 2015? And what does it cost in 221, an entry level home? You know, uh, Gosh, 2010, go back. Uh, I know we were selling homes at Copper River at 220, 220,000. 
and today the starting price is uh, in the 400s. So it's you know it, it's gone up double. Uh, the biggest challenge uh, we face today is uh, supply chain disruptions. We just can't get garage doors or stucco materials or drywall or paint or appliances. I mean, it's a, a different issue every day. A home that used to take five months to build now is pushing eight months. Uh, costs are substantially higher. I mean, it's really a myriad of efforts. And, and the, the challenge, the issue is this, with interest rates at 3%, there's a ton of folks that qualify to buy a home and they want to own one. But the supply is so restricted. And of course, getting projects approved takes longer today. Nikki Vino, our planning, uh, our past planning director of the city of Fresno just put up a great comment. There is no regional planning. And, and that's a really good point. Uh, if the cities kind of came together and go, okay, how do we grow together? How do, how do we have great transportation projects that, that link us, jobs projects uh, that, that, you know, supply the jobs? You know, how do we work together to, to provide employment, shelter, education, um, you know, and recreation uh, for, the, for, you know, for the Valley residents? But that, that's really a, a Her Herculean effort to do the to do to bring all the cities together to do great regional planning and and I know there is efforts in there and, and a lot of cities connect through the Fresno Cog uh, <laughs> on their on their projects but uh, we have a myriad of challenges and that's why home prices continue to go up. Uh, Goldman Sachs had a report out about a couple of months ago. Forecast for 2022 is home prices nationwide would escalate another 16 percent, which just is incredible. Um, anyhow, I don't have really anything else. Um, but Bill's original that. question was really that that Fresno, of the top 70 markets, Fresno is number three in the amount of growth uh, during these recent COVID years. Isn't that correct, Bill? And so, Bill, what do you how do you explain that? That did the article talk about that? Why um, that was happening? So uh, Fresno historically affordable homes. It's one of the things that attracts people to the area. And this growth was from 2010 to 2020. We expect that when the numbers are in for 2021, it will show uh, a continued home ownership rate despite the challenges. Just a couple points I would like to make on this in regard to rent control. If I were on the city council, I would be for rent control on slumlords. I would use that as a negative incentive to make them fix up their properties, make them more attractive, make them safe for people to live in and uh, keep the costs low. If I were on the city council or I were the mayor, I would uh, uh, pass incentives for infill development I would have a meeting with the development community and I would say, when we do X number of homes of infill, you can do X number of uh, greenfield new developments. I would take the uh, page from the Clovis playbook and I would master plan these areas that are to be annexed or master plan the areas that are already in the city limits. We see the value in that. Uh, they stay clean, uh, people take care of their properties, there's a sense of neighborhood, 
I'm going to point out that every mayor since Alan Autry has promised a master plan west of 99. I have yet to see it. This has hurt Fresno tremendously. We had a tremendous on nine. There's water out there. Also would take us uh, some street uh, infrastructure improvements, much of the costs borne by developers and have a master plan community out there that uh, uh, communities that would look Northeast Fresno, uh, the good parts of Northwest Fresno. And uh, finally, I mean, I just think this falls on Mayor Dyer. He promised to roll out the red carpet at City Hall. I haven't really seen that. We need someone that can get this development department to uh, produce or, or work in partnerships with developers on good, good plans that produce good housing stock that produce goods. And finally, it's incumbent on our leaders to uh, not give in to NIMBYisms particularly on multifamily. We have great needs for housing in Fresno for all kinds of price points, whether it's to rent or to own. And I truly believe that Fresno could ever solve this problem because of our great water situation. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but as for a suburban area, we have the best state of California. We're blessed to be right where the Kings River and the San Joaquin Rivers come tumbling down out of the Sierra. It pro produces a great aquifer. We take care of that aquifer, manage our water right, the jewel of the city, especially you throw in how we're centrally located, how we're hooked to transportation. These are all things that are possibilities. I think we've been beaten down for so long that we don't look at these off. We need to provide for everybody in the community. You hate rent control. I think there's a way to, to use it as a tool for the slumlords uh, to punish them and force them to make the decision to either improve their properties or have the onus of rent. Builds a, a beautiful multifamily uh, complex. There's no need for rent control there. And okay. so again, I'll get off my soapbox. We're going to, uh, Mike and then Steve, and then we're going you, to. You made a good point at the end. If we're doing our jobs right, there's no need for rent control. My worry is, look, people, like we saw this musical chairs thing where everyone's running for another office. I'm worried about the kick the can down the road concept where to appease certain groups to get votes for a future election. If you give them the power to enact rent control for slumlords, that's an important point. But you've opened the floodgates to slippery slope and then we're going to actually prevent people from investing in this community. But you get the nail on the head, getting the planning department to work, actually having red carpet after we do the work to get things flowing. But here's the other thing, infrastructure, West 99. So we just had a couple items on the agenda regarding opening up 99 to more development. We went out this, the West area steering committee plans coming forward finally, which is a good plan for West 99, but we need people to invest out there. We need infrastructure, Veterans Boulevard. I was really, uh, you know, I think people are surprised that they would understand that a lot of these street lights and street improvements, it's not just paid for by hardworking taxpayers to pay taxes. Developers front that money. That is developer initiated. Those millions of dollars or expenses come from investors. So we, if we have rent control and mechanisms like that, yeah, it's a lazy way to start the problem and kick the can down the road. 
but it's not sustainable. And we're actually going to push those dollars away and in, increase the amount of time we have a forgotten present West 99. Steve. Yeah. Uh, and Bill, and Bill knows this, that uh, in major swear engines final year, Bill, um, I, we, I had many battles with her, but we did work together west of 99 and we inserted a, uh, something like $750,000 in one year for the initiate the study west of 99 to be followed up with another $750,000 the next year to complete the funding for the west of 99 uh, master plan. So a lot of that work has now been done. I'm long, Mayor Swearingen's gone. I'm gone. Mike is there. That work is getting done, but I will tell you, there is still some resistance. Uh, a lot of developers are following market demand, and they prefer to build on the other side of the city right now. Um, it seems more palatable. In some neighborhoods, you have Clovis Unified versus Fresno Unified. And so um, I agree with you completely. There have been great steps made in that direction, and I believe that things have been done that will open up west of 99. But the city of Fresno would probably be well served to take some of their ARPA dollars and front load infrastructure west of 99, build some of those streets you're talking about, Bill, bite the bullet so that it's not all on the back of developers and future homeowners and jumpstart some of that because there is a huge demand to go on the east side of the city of Fresno. And so that competition is really damaging or hurting west of 99, in my opinion. Okay. It sounds like, Steve, you got the last word, unless if there's anybody else with a final 30-second uh, comment. Uh, Mike has got one. Bill or one, Dave? Just one more thing. Bill's right about one thing, though. We as council members have to convince our residents more against the nimbyism when it comes to multifamily, because a complete neighborhood has single-family, multifamily. It has commercial. So he is right to call us out on that, uh, on the council. We're going to have to do more to convince folks to, within reason, accept different types of housing throughout the city if we're in a housing crisis. Okay. Good point. Uh, yeah, that's going to take a lot of convincing. It is. A, it it is. For a, a family or a neighborhood of a single family home to say, hey, let's put an apartment complex in there. Come on. It's yeah, you have, you have cases where, unfortunately, with I think without a lot of public input, um, there were there were rezone mm. happened. Uh, citywide rezone happens. So I have that happening in my district as well. So, I mean, there's only so much we can do, but what we do has to, I think, do everything we can to have the consent of the neighborhood. Let me, let me but, just say that. I'm sorry. Let me say yeah, that. No, no, no. Go ahead, Doris, please. There is, there is many models of how to build single family, medium density next to single family, higher density next to apartment complexes and next to commercial. There's great city planning examples happening all throughout our beautiful state and across our beautiful country, uh, but not stacked up against, right against one another. Mm -hmm. I think, Mike, what you're referring to is, you know, some of the designs are, you can have multifamily next to single family, but they need, there needs to be enough of a buffer. Is it a trail? Right. Is it a park? Is it some, some kind of a landscape buffer? So nobody wants to have a two, three, or four-story building. You said it yourself in one of these meetings about a couple of years ago. Nobody wants to have a four-story building looking into your backyard. Uh, so, and, and homeowners get that, and we get that as home builders. But there's a way to transition from these different densities so they become compatible. And by the way, um, I can tell you this. Most of our homeowners 
want to have walkable communities. Be, they want to be able to get out of their house, walk to a park in their neighborhood, and also walk to uh, to a local store or restaurant, get grab a few things and, or grab dinner and, and go home. So what, what we call complete neighborhoods, a combination of single family, multifamily, and commercial, all walkable. That's really the, the, the design of the future. Uh, and, and Fresno is looking into that. And Clovis is aggressively looking into that and how to implement and execute that. Okay. Any other comments? Because we're already 10 minutes over uh, by anybody. No? Okay. Uh, have a great week, everybody. On behalf of all of us at GB Wire, uh, have a healthy and uh, prosperous week. Yeah, we're all getting ready for Christmas the following week. Uh, but we'll see you all next uh, Tuesday. Good night. Take care.